Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. One important political story this past week was the indictment of New Jersey Democratic Senator Bob Menendez on corruption charges for the second time in eight years. As required by Senate rules, Senator Menendez stepped down from his chairmanship of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He says he will not resign his Senate seat despite calls from many of his Democratic congressional colleagues and New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy to do so. Eight years ago in 2015, Senator Medendez was indicted on similar federal charges in a different case. It ended in a deadlocked jury, and the federal government later dropped all charges against him. We thought it would be interesting for context on today's case to turn to this archival episode of Q&A from 2017. Randall Eliason, a former assistant U.S. attorney and law professor, discussed that first case against Senator Medendez and the process of getting to a federal indictment. Eliason also discusses other prominent modern political corruption cases, including those against Illinois Democratic Representative Dan Rostenkowski, Alaska Republican Senator Ted Stevens, and the Supreme Court decision in the corruption case against Virginia Republican Governor Bob McDonnell. And now to that 2017 conversation. Randall Eliason, before I ask you about the Robert Menendez case underway in the courts up in New Jersey, Give us some background about how you got into the business of the law and the relationship between the federal prosecutor and somebody in politics. Well, when I graduated from law school in 85, I came to Washington for my first job at a a private law firm. And after a few years, I joined the U.S. Attorney's Office here in D.C. And I worked there as a federal prosecutor for about 12 years. And most of the time in that office, I was in Uh, what they called the public corruption government fraud section. So I was focusing on cases involving public corruption and fraud against the government, uh, both federal and local officials. And then by the time I left the office, I was serving as the chief of that section. Um, So I was supervising the attorneys who were focusing on those types of cases. Uh, I left the office in 2001 so that I could start teaching and writing on a part-time basis, and I've been doing that ever since, uh, teaching a course on white-collar criminal law at the George Washington University Law School here in DC. And I've also taught it at American University uh, Law School and uh, one semester at Georgetown University Law Center. Where did you get your law degree and why did you go into this business in the first place? I got my law degree from Harvard Law School in 1985. Um, and even before I went to law school, I knew that what I really wanted to do was be a trial lawyer. I wanted to be in the courtroom trying cases. And I figured out after a few years in private practice that the best way actually to get trial experience was to be a prosecutor or a criminal defense attorney, because they're the ones who are in court all the time. Private civil litigation doesn't really get you into court all that much, so I didn't actually start off with a particular desire to be a prosecutor necessarily. I just knew that I wanted to be in court all the time. And when I was at the uh, at a private law firm here in town, there were a number of former assistant U.S. attorneys working at that firm who always talked about that job is the best job they'd ever had and and how wonderful it was to be uh, at the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. And so after hearing that from a few different people, I decided that I would give that a try. Who does a U.S. attorney work for and how do they get their jobs? Uh, They're appointed by the president. So each judicial district in the country has a U.S. attorney in charge of uh, uh, the prosecutions and civil, federal civil cases in that judicial district. Some states have one, some states have many. I think there are 94 total in the country. So there's a U.S. attorney for each district that's appointed uh, by the president. They're part of the Department of Justice. They have to be approved by the Senate? Yes. Does the assistant U.S. attorney have to be approved by the Senate? No. That's the non-political appointment. So they are, they are hired by the, by the U.S. attorney uh, and then just become uh, career employees of the Department of Who Justice. Who is the boss of a U.S. attorney? Well, the ultimate boss is the president, and it's part of the executive branch, and then more immediately it's the attorney general, uh, the head of the Department of Justice. And then there's also, you know, different inter uh, steps below that. There's an executive office of U.S. attorneys within the Department of Justice that focuses uh, specifically on the U.S. attorneys because there's, as you know, the Department of Justice is a huge organization with a lot of different components, but it's within the Department of Justice. What's the highest profile public case you were ever involved in when you were a prosecutor for 12 years? Now, as a prosecutor, probably the highest profile thing I was involved in was the prosecution of uh, Dan Rostenkowski, 
who was a congressman from Illinois. This was back in the late 90s. Um, and he was uh, prosecuted for basically a series of schemes where he was uh, stealing funds from different government programs and using them for his personal use. And so that was a case that happened here in D.C. He was indicted and ultimately uh, pled guilty and went to jail for about a year and a half. He's deceased, but we have some video of him after he had been indicted so that everybody can remember what he looked like and sounded okay. like. Today, I pled not guilty to each of the charges before me. I entered these pleas because I am not guilty. I will fight these false charges and will prevail. I will wash away the mud that has been splattered upon my reputation. Some ask, how could you have done these things? The answer is simple. I didn't do them. He was a former chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. He was enormously well liked in this town, both on the right, the left, the Republicans and Democrats. When you hear him recount that statement about not being guilty, what's, what's your reaction when you hear that? Well, that's sort of par for the course. I mean, it's common for someone who's first indicted to come out and, you know, proclaim their innocence and say they're going to fight the charges. And so it doesn't really indicate to me that, uh, 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 that it's anything out of the ordinary. In other words, it's sort of what you expect uh, a politician or, or most criminal, you know, high-profile criminal defendants will initially at least come out and, and deny the charges, and then the case proceeds from there. I mean, this guy had a lot of power in town. How, how, when you were watching the process, um, anything about it surprised you that uh, you didn't expect? And how hard was it to convict him? No, there wasn't anything in particular. I mean, one thing I think that was notable um, about the case, and I should say I was not, I mean, at that point I was a very junior person in the office. I was not the lead prosecutor on that case by any means. Um, I was part of the team. Um, one thing that... Um, I think was notable was the lack of any even perception of political influence uh, in the investigation. In other words, the investigation was begun under a Republican administration and then after the uh, 1992 election was uh, switched over to a, uh, the Clinton administration, Democratic administration. And obviously, Rostenkowski was a very prominent Democrat who, uh, among other things, was a potentially important player in the President Clinton's efforts to get health care reform passed. And so there was some concern, rumblings, that maybe now that President Clinton was elected, this investigation, this prosecution would somehow be stifled, you know, by, by the Clinton Justice Department. And there was never even an inkling of that within our office. The, the new Democratic U.S. attorney came in and the case proceeded just as it had been proceeding. And there was no hint at all within our office or from the Department of Justice that we should do anything differently uh, simply because now there was a Democratic administration in power. He, he went to prison for, did you say a year and a half? I think it was 17 months, if I recall. Yeah. What's your opinion of how, um, I, this is a bad way to ask it, how corrupt are politicians from your perspective? You teach white collar crime, but also you've watched over the years what's going on right. in this town. Well, I don't think things like Rostenkowski or the Menendez case that we're going to talk about you know, shortly are, are the norm by any means. I do think there's a real tension in our system. Uh, since we have a system of sort of privately financed campaigns and politicians do have a need to raise money and a, uh, you know, the, the right to raise money and, and to fund their campaigns, there's a real tension there between the, the, uh, the goal of having politicians who are only working to serve the, the public interest and serve all their constituents and this kind of constant push and need to raise money. And I think that can, you know, lead to uh, uh, a lot of dangers of potential corruption. But I don't think by any means that, that things like what happened in the Rostentowski case or the allegations in the Menendez case are, are the norm. Would you have been able, the prosecutor's office, been able to have convicted Rostenkowski back then if the Supreme Court had already decided the McConnell decision? No, that's a good question. Um, I mean McDonald. McDonald, yeah. Um, <coughs> yes, I don't think uh, there would have been a factor because the Rostenkowski case was not primarily a bribery case. Um, McDonald uh, deals with the federal bribery statute and what the government has to prove in a bribery case. Rostenkowski was really a theft case. It was theft and false statements. Uh, so 
different kind of uh, allegations. I don't think it would have had an effect. Let me just clear for those who don't remember, Robert McDonald was the governor of the state of Virginia, and right. it went on for a long time. He was convicted uh, of what, what would it be, bribery? Yes, basically. Yeah. And then the Supreme Court decided, you remember the number? Uh, the court decision, how many was, was all oh, it was nine, unanimous. nine zero. Yeah, it was unanimous, yeah. yeah. What, what was your reaction when you heard that they threw that case out? Yeah, I was very surprised and disappointed. I think it's an incorrect decision. Why? Um, so, if we could do a little background on, on McDonnell. I mean, basically, it was the governor and his wife uh, who accepted a series of, you know, valuable gifts over time from this uh, businessman, Johnny Williams, who wanted their help in promoting his product within the Virginia government. His company made a product called Anatoblock, and he wanted to get Virginia universities to do research studies and try to sort of promote his product within the government so that it could maybe get FDA approval and, and be a big, you know, successful product for him. So over a series of a couple of years, he gave the McDonald's things like uh, uh, $10,000 or so in designer gowns that he purchased in New York City for Mrs. McDonald. He paid for the caterer for their daughter's wedding to the tune of about $15,000. Uh, gave the governor a Rolex watch. And there were other, you know, various golf outings and things like that. But And the biggest thing was about $120,000 in what they called loans. Uh, there were no interest, no paperwork, no documentation, uh, just basically gifts of, of money that uh, total about 120000 that they, again, later called them loans. I'm not sure if they would have ever been called loans if they had not come to light. Um, so in exchange for that, he was hoping that the governor would help promote this product within, within the government. Um, and he did, the governor did, some, did take some steps for, for Williams. He arranged meetings for him, made some phone calls, tried to introduce him to other members of his government, and uh, had a product launch event for Anatoblock at the governor's mansion. So the jury found that that was a bribe, that was a, a quid pro quo, that in exchange for these gifts, the, the governor was exercising the power of his office to benefit the man that was paying him off. And these were secret gifts, which is an important factor in a lot of these cases. In other words, these were not you know, publicly disclosed campaign contributions where everybody can see where the support is coming from. These are secret gifts that the public doesn't know about, so there's no way for anyone to judge whether the governor is actually acting in the best interest of all his constituents or whether he's just acting to benefit the man that was paying him off. So the jury found a bribery scheme. Uh, the judge agreed. The Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals unanimously agreed and then unanimously declined to rehear the case with the entire court. And then it went to the U.S. Supreme Court and they unanimously reversed. And it's a, to me, a very it's a lawyerly, a very lawyerly opinion in the worst sense of the word. In other words, the opinion focuses exclusively on this precise definition in the federal bribery statute of what is an official act, quote unquote. And it spends a lot of time parsing this statutory language and concluding that based on this very precise definition in the statute, the things that Bob McDonald did did not amount to official acts. And so they couldn't support a bribery conviction. And to me, that's really missing the forest for the tree, a single tree of what's an official act. Missing the focus on the entire corrupt relationship. I mean, this was not, uh, again, a question of a governor doing constituent favors or what the, I think the court or his attorneys referred to as routine political courtesies for a regular supporter, or for someone who just gives him campaign contributions or maybe holds fundraisers for him or things like that. This was in response to and in exchange for secret gifts, corrupt gifts that the public didn't know about. And so I think the court mistakenly focused simply on what the sort of precise nature of what the governor did and failed to focus on the fact that basically Williams was able to buy access to government power um, and get actions from the governor, uh, exercise to get the governor to exercise the power of his office in exchange for these secret gifts and that gave him an access and uh, uh, benefit from the governor that regular citizens couldn't get. You're listening to a 2017 conversation with Randall Eliason on Senator Bob Menendez's first corruption trial. Before the court, here is government, uh, Governor McDonald, Mac, McDonald's um, counsel, defense counsel, Noel Francisco, just to hear a little bit of what he was saying during the oral argument. 
the government argues that in quid pro quo bribery, official action encompasses anything within the range of official duties. In order to reach that conclusion, it asks that you disregard a 9-0 decision of this Court. The government is wrong. In order to engage in official action, an official must either make a government decision or urge someone else to do so. The line is between access to decision-makers on the one hand and trying to influence those decisions on the other. He was successful. Why? Yes. I think the court was concerned about the potential breadth of the statute. If they upheld a conviction, they were worried about the ability of prosecutors to go after uh, governors for, or you know, politicians for what they saw as, as routine political courtesies. And again, I think the, the flaw in that fear is that it fails to take into account that this was not an ordinary political relationship where a politician was simply doing favors for a constituent or a donor. But this was in response to these secret, uh, you know, corrupt gifts that were taking place. And I think it's a mistake um, that, you know, Mr. Francisco's position did prevail. I think it's a mistake to narrow the scope of what we say can be the subject of a bribery case to only this very precisely defined official act. And it's not true in every bribery statute. For example, the Virginia state bribery statute uh, prohibits, you know, paying a public official for any exercise of their discretion, which is far broader and would seem to cover Governor McDonald's behavior. So the problem I have with the court's result is now we're left with a situation where, for example, Governor McDonald or some other governor could set up a system and say, uh, look, you want to meet with someone in my cabinet, you want to meet with someone in my administration to make a pitch, try to get a government contract, try to sell them you know, on some other program or lobby for your client, I'll set up that meeting for you uh, and you pay me $10,000. And that's not going to be disclosed anywhere, that'll just go in my pocket, it's not going to be a campaign contribution or in any public form, and you pay me and I'll set up the meeting. I'm not going to tell them how to decide, I'm not going to put my finger on the scale, but I'll get you in the room so you can make your pitch and you pay me $10,000. If you don't pay me, no meeting. Under the McDonald opinion, that's no longer a bribe. I think most people would say that kind of a pay for access scheme is corrupt. But under, under McDonald, you'd have to say what the governor did arranging that meeting, that's not an official act according to the court, and so that's not a problem. So I think that's, I think that's wrong. Here's a moment in that oral argument where the Chief Justice kind of tipped off where the whole thing went. It's 35 seconds. There's an extraordinary document in this case, and that's the amicus brief filed by former White House counsel to President Obama, uh, former White House counsel to President George W. Bush, former White House counsel to President Clinton, former White House counsel to President George H.W. Bush, former White House counsel to President Reagan. And they say, quoting their brief, that if this decision is upheld, it will cripple the ability of elected officials to fulfill their role in our representative democracy. Now, I think it's extraordinary that those people agree on anything, but... <laughs> but let me ask, though, and this doesn't, this doesn't sound great, but what about the justices who worked in the government thinking, and they are in a high-profile position, thinking that a prosecutor could come after them? Uh, while they're on... I mean, in other words, the, the kind yeah. of people that go on the court are people that have been inside government, and it, you know, no one expected, I don't think, a 9-0 decision on this right. thing. That uh, they all started thinking, well, <clears throat> they could, you know, a prosecutor could easily come after us for the simplest of uh, situations. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there was uh, a sort of parade of horribles that was that was trotted out repeatedly by the defense. The idea that, you know, if this decision is upheld then any politician who goes to a Rotary Club breakfast, you know, is now potentially subject to prosecution. I just think that was a, a you know, dramatic overstatement. Um, and again, failed to focus on the fact that these were not, in the McDonald case, just a uh, routine political favors for a supporter. So I think those concerns were overblown and exaggerated, but, you know, they were successful in persuading the court that if they didn't limit the statute that that, that way, that that was a real risk. Um, Part of it comes down to whether you think, you know, the prosecutors in the Department of Justice can be trusted to not bring kind of frivolous cases. And there's differences of opinion about that. You know, some would say that the system we've had historically has been pretty successful. We have these rather broad bribery statutes, but prosecutors don't run around indicting politicians for routine 
political favors and for going to rotary breakfasts. We can rely on their discretion to bring appropriate cases where there appears to be truly corrupt behavior. But there are those who disagree and say we need to impose some more limitations. Otherwise, we're giving the prosecutors way too much power to potentially go after politicians they don't like. And I, that was definitely one of the court's concerns. The reason we're asking you to come here and talk about Senator Menendez, Robert Menendez of New Jersey, who is in a trial in New Jersey, in Newark right now, something they expect to go on for another couple of uh, months possibly, uh, is because one vote matters in the United States Senate. And first, let me show you uh, 15 seconds or so of Senator Menendez so everybody knows who we're talking about, and then you can explain what's going on in New Jersey. Okay. I'm angry because prosecutors at the Justice Department don't know the difference between friendship and corruption and have chosen to twist my duties as a senator and my friendship into something that is improper. They are dead wrong, and I am confident that they will be proven so. <clears throat> two years ago, the trial just started. It took two years. Right. Go back to the beginning of this. And if you had been in the prosecutor's office or the U.S. attorney's office, how would this? How did this start? Well, there were there were some initial allegations about you know Senator Menendez's relationship with this Dr. Samuel Melgan, who ended up being his co-defendant, that the government was investigating. And in the course of looking at those allegations, they came across all this other conduct that led them into a broader inquiry. And that's not uncommon. You know, you start looking at one aspect of a case and and other doors open up, sort of head down other avenues. Um, the two-year delay, you know, since it's been indicted, was primarily because the senator was claiming that the prosecution was barred by the speech or debate clause, the Constitution's uh, prohibition on, you know, holding members of Congress responsible for anything they say or any speech or debate on the floor of Congress or anything related to that. So that, How does that relate to all this? Well, it ultimately doesn't uh, because the, the courts rejected his claims. Um, you know, he, he was arguing basically that he was being prosecuted for his official actions as a senator um, by you know, the steps that he took, uh, alleged in the indictment uh, on, on, uh, on these various issues, were part of his official duties. And so the prosecutors are really trying to punish him for protected speech or debate activity, protected activity that's central to his role as a senator. Um, you know, the courts rejected that, the Court of Appeals rejected that, the Supreme Court declined to hear the appeals. So that's not going to be a part of the case now, but it took almost two years to get that resolved because a member of Congress is allowed to appeal that before your trial. It's one of these few issues that you can actually get decided before you have to go to trial. So that was the big part of the delay. Um, so in the course of the broader investigation into this relationship between Senator Menendez and Dr. Melgan, his co-defendant, the prosecutors discovered what they have charged as this sort of ongoing bribery scheme. So it's another bribery case. Um, and the allegations are that in exchange for a number of you know, valuable gifts and contributions from Dr. Milligan over the years, that he basically had Senator Menendez on retainer and that the senator would take, uh, did take a series of official actions to benefit uh, Dr. Milligan in exchange for those gifts. So that clip you played, that's the heart, that's the whole heart of the case. All the, the entire case comes down to why was he doing these things, right? Because you know, the interesting thing about a lot of these cases, there's not a lot of dispute really about what happened, the facts of what happened. No one's going to deny that uh, Dr. Melgan gave Senator Menendez all these trips on his private jet, for example, or that the campaign contributions were made. And no one's really going to deny that Senator Menendez did lobby uh, with you know various executive branch officials on Melgan's behalf. The whole key comes down to why the, why he did it. Why did it happen? Because the government's alleging it was because of this corrupt relationship they had, and so Menendez was acting in exchange for these gifts. And the senator's claiming it was because uh, Dr. Melgan's my friend, and I was trying to help him out and doing sort of routine political activities that I would that I would do for anybody. The grand jury um, did. The, was there a grand jury involved in this? Where does the grand jury meet? How many are on the grand jury? And how hard is it? You were, I assume you've been before a grand jury trying to get some kind of an indictment. Uh, is that, how difficult is that? Yeah, uh, grand jury is definitely involved. Every federal uh, indictment has to be returned by a grand, every federal felony has to be indicted by a grand jury. So 
The grand jury in this case was sitting in New Jersey, the senator's home state and the, and the state uh, where the trial is taking place. And it's made up of usually about 20, 22 people who, again, they get jury duty just like people get jury duty for trials. It's members of the local community who come in and they sit inside the grand jury to hear the government's evidence. It's a very different kind of proceeding from a trial because its purpose is not to decide guilt or innocence at all. Its purpose is just to decide, is there enough here to make it appropriate to file charges and bring this defendant into court to answer those charges? So the grand jury is only making a probable cause determination, uh, similar to a judge signing an arrest warrant or something. It's very different. It's not at all the guilt beyond a reasonable doubt determination that the trial jury now has to make in the trial that's going on. So they're hearing usually primarily only the government side of the case. It's the government's presentation of the evidence that it has. The defense in the grand jury doesn't have a right to come in and present witnesses uh, or present evidence or cross-examine or anything like that. It's a closed proceeding. There's no judge. Uh, there's no defense attorney. There, the defendant is not there. It's the prosecutor and the witness and the members of the grand jury. And so it's the uh, primary investigative tool that federal prosecutors have because it's the grand jury that gives you the power to issue subpoenas and compel a reluctant witnesses to come in, testify under oath, uh, compel institutions you know, or people to give you documents and other tangible evidence that you might need in the case if that they might be reluctant to turn over. So it's the grand jury and the subpoena power and the ability to place witnesses under oath that is the primary investigative tool um, in federal prosecutions and particularly important in, in white collar cases like this. Technical thing, um, Dr. Melgan, who was his friend or, or, or Senator Menendez, if the grand jury calls them in to testify, do they have to go? Um, well, he would have to go, but he could claim the Fifth Amendment and likely would. So he, still, does he, he have his lawyer in the room with him? No, but the lawyer goes with him to the grand jury room and sits right outside the door, basically. So it's it's kind of a uh, odd procedure when you're talking about representing a grand jury witness or a grand jury client. If you're the attorney, uh, you're accustomed to being able to be with your client and you know protect them and object and cross-examine and things like that. In the grand jury, if you've got a, a client going in the grand jury, you prepare them and, and try to get them ready for what's happening and then you go to the grand jury room and the client goes in and the door closes and you're sitting outside in the chair hoping I, that everything is going okay. I want, to, I want to ask you about the politics of this. Under what government was he indicted? I mean, Democrat, Republican. Um, he was indicted under the Obama administration. And how often is that the case? I mean, you sat there, did you ever, were you ever politically influenced? No. And who, during the 12 years that you were a prosecutor, who was president during those years? Uh, well, it started off with uh, George Bush, number one, and then it was President Clinton for uh, most of the time I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office, and then when I left, it was uh, George Bush, number two. The judge in the case up in Newark, I looked it up, and I, I hope I'm right about this, Judge William Walls, and I looked at, to see who nominated him, and it was Bill Clinton. And he, I think, is senior judge status. What does that mean? Um, it's sort of a semi-retirement status that judges can take when they reach a certain stage in their career. And it just basically usually means they're, they're slowing down, they're taking fewer cases. Uh, so they're still active, still hearing cases, but they're not part of the active rotation that's, that's uh, uh, you know, picking up cases every day from the court. You're listening to a 2017 conversation with Randall Eliason on Senator Bob Menendez's first corruption trial. I want to show you one of his attorneys who is also the attorney for Jared um, Kushner? Kushner. Yeah. Uh, and lots of, he was John Edwards' attorney and uh, uh, others, but it's Abby Lowell. I just yeah. want to show you uh, what he looks like, and he's talking back in, in, I think this is 2016, so everybody knows who he is. As we have seen in so many cases, from former HUD Secretary Mike Espy in 1999, to Senator Ted Stevens in 2007, and two years ago in the case of Senator John Edwards. Prosecutors at the Justice Department often get it wrong. These charges are the latest mistakes. 
But put him in context. I, I mentioned uh, John Edwards. He got him off where he was a hung mm -hmm. jury. Uh, he's representing Jared Kushner right now, and he's not been charged with anything. John Ensign, a Republican senator from Nevada, he also represented, and Jack Abramoff. What role does a fellow like Abby Lowell play in this kind of thing? Well, um, the white-collar white defense is actually quite a bit different from sort of criminal defense of, you know, street crime, robbers, homicide, you know, defendants, things like that. Um, they're working very actively throughout that grand jury stage we talked about, working with the prosecutors and their clients to sort of try to manage the investigation, do their own parallel investigation, um, talking with the prosecutors about, you know, why they think charges aren't appropriate or, you know, what, what the outcome should be concerning their clients. So they're very actively involved in that pre-indictment stage. And then, of course, if there is an indictment, then they're actively involved, as Mr. Lowell is now, in, in ultimately doing the trial or some other kind of disposition. So uh, these high-profile cases, you know, attract the, the high-profile sort of best white-collar defense lawyers that money can buy. For those that are interested, you've written a lot about this, and I have some of the written material. You've written some recently about the Menendez trial, and we really ought to read what some of what you wrote so that people can hear some of the specifics. Uh, you mentioned the the uh, free plane rides earlier, and the pilot, one of the former pilots, testified this week. Right. And I have a story here. It's from CNN. Uh, details of Senator Bob Menendez's expensive travel arrangements took center stage during the senator's federal corruption trial Wednesday of this week. Prosecutors claim that New Jersey Democrat accepted rides on private jets and other gifts from his friend and wealthy ophthalmologist Dr. Solomon Melgan in exchange for political favors. I want to run some video so you can see what Dr. Melgan looks like. He's an ophthalmologist and has a retina clinic, three of them, I think, in, in Florida. Uh, Dr. Melgan is on the right with the glasses, the, uh, uh, and he's already been convicted, I, have, I believe, of a, of a crime. Yeah, a separate case down in Florida that was a Medicare fraud case related to the same allegations that are now at stake in this trial. In other words, the, the, one of the allegations in this trial is that Senator Menendez was trying to help Dr. Melgan resolve the dispute he was having with Health and Human Services about alleged overbilling for a medication at his eye clinics, the tune of about $9 million. And that's one of the big areas of this current trial is the, the claim that in exchange for all the jet trips and things like that, that Doc, uh, Senator Menendez was working, lobbying uh, people within the executive branch to basically make this dispute go away or to help Dr. Melgan. From what you can tell, how good of friends are they? Well. Um, I think that, I, I don't think it's disputed that they have been friends for quite some time. I mean, they've known each other for a long time. But not until um, he was elected to the Senate. I don't think that's right. I think their friendship goes back earlier than that. If, if I remember, I'm not positive, but I thought I read somewhere they've been friends for about 20 years. Um, uh, not certain about that. But, but it's in contrast to, for example, the Bob McDonald case we talked about, where, again, part of his defense was also these gifts were out of friendship. But he had just met Johnny Williams right when he began running for governor. They did not have any kind of a long, uh, long existing relationship. But the, the stories I've read, at least, I don't obviously know this personally, is that uh, Senator Menendez and Dr. Melgan have, you know, been friends for a long time, have gone to each other's family events, children's weddings, things like that. So they do have a friendship. That doesn't necessarily, doesn't decide the case at all because friends can engage in corrupt behavior. Right, I can rob a bank with my friend. I can, uh, if I have a friend who's a senator, I can bribe him to do things for me. So friendship is not a complete defense, but it is what the what uh, the senator and Dr. Melgan are using to argue in this case that that's really the only reason any of this was going on uh, is out of friendship, not out of a kind of a corrupt exchange of you know gifts for political favors. Favors. By the way, if uh, Senator Menendez is convicted. Does he have to resign the Senate? Uh, he doesn't have to. No, I mean, the tradition has sort of been that senators are convicted frequently do resign, uh, but there's no sort of set timetable on when that has to happen. And if he refused to resign, then the Senate can vote to expel him. But he doesn't have to resign. So if he were convicted, uh, how long do you think this will go until there's a final decision? I think it's really hard to say, and it, a lot would depend on what the senator himself chose to do. Um, 
but certainly you wouldn't you wouldn't expect that to happen really quickly because there'd be arguments that well he's got you know a right to appeal perhaps or the Senate would say you know assuming he didn't resign then the Senate might say well we have to have hearings on deciding whether to expel him or not and you'd expect that to take some time so uh, I wouldn't expect it to happen immediately unless he did resign. I mentioned his one vote is rather significant because if Governor Christie, who leaves office at the end of the year, were able to re replace him with a Republican who would right. vote to uh, eliminate the Obamacare thing, that one vote would make a big difference. How much tension do you sense there is either what's going on in the court or here in town looking at this case? Well, I think uh, there's certainly been a lot of talk about the point you're mentioning. In other words, the political ramifications, if he is convicted, what will that do to the balance of power in the Senate? And so I think uh, there's a lot of concern or interest in, in that issue on kind of both sides of the aisle. Um, I wouldn't really expect, I mean, I think it would be surprising if, assuming he were convicted, that if it were resolved uh, you know, so, so quickly that Governor, that Governor Christie would be the one making the appointment. It seems to me likely that it would drag on longer than that. And so the scenarios that are being played out about him being convicted and Governor Christie getting to appoint a Republican to replace him, I guess that seems unlikely to me. Um, we don't know for certain, but I, I guess I'd be surprised if anything happened that quickly. Back to what you've written, uh, on multiple occasions, Menendez, sometimes uh, with a guest, stayed free of charge at Melgan's Villa in a luxury resort in the Dominican Republic. On more than a dozen occasions, Melgan flew Menendez and sometimes his guest to and from the Dominican Villa on Melgan's private jet. When Melgan's jet wasn't available, he arranged for other private jet transport for Menendez or purchased a first-class ticket for him. You wrote, in 2010, Melgan used his American Express points to book a suite at a Paris hotel valued at nearly $5,000 for Menendez to use for a three-day vacation. And then finally, you list in 2012, Melgan made more than $750,000 in campaign donations to benefit Menendez, as well as 20,000 contribution to Menendez's legal defense fund. Right. Stop on the legal defense fund for a moment. In some of the stories I saw, both the Republicans and the Democrats have given to that defense fund, including those who are very strong about Israel, Sheldon Adelson and Sabam. Uh, Hayam Sabam, uh, both gave him, I think, 10 grand or more. I think maybe uh, Sheldon Allison's wife also gave him 10 grand. Th isn't that just a political contribution? You know, if, if that were the only thing at issue in the case, then I don't think you'd have a case, right? I mean, in other words, standing alone, you can say even some of the PAC contributions, if, if the only thing at issue here were the campaign contributions and the PAC contributions, I think the case would look very different. You know, I. I, I now, there's still a claim that even with those, that they're so closely linked that it suggests a corrupt relationship with the donation being made, you know, the same day that Senator Menendez goes and meets with someone at Health and Human Services, things like that. But absolutely, the contributions to things like a legal defense fund, they're kind of in a different category uh, from the things like the private jet trips that don't get disclosed. Because at least on, the f on their face, the contributions are legal and legitimate, right? If they are directly linked to an official act, it can still be a bribery case, but it kind of raises the bar if that's all you have are legal, you know, disclosed contributions that kind of raises the bar of showing a corrupt relationship. Things like the jet trips or the, you know, hotel suite in Paris, things like that. I mean, you talk about the friendship defense, you know, and, and uh, I think the difficulty for the senator with claiming that this was all just out of friendship or the difficulty for both defendants is this wasn't just, ex for example, Dr. Melligan was flying to the Dominican Republic anyway and so he gave the senator a ride, you know, as the allegations in the indictment point, uh, point out. There were times when Dr. Melligan wasn't going, you know, but he sent the jet to take Senator Menendez down to the villa. Sometimes he would send the jet from Florida up to DC to pick the senator up and then bring him back down to the Dominican Republic. Um, and when his jet was unavailable, he sent another private jet, you know, so, or, or bought him a first-class ticket. So there was this, you know, those allegations, those uh, facts start to take you kind of out of the range of what people would think of as 
normal friendship, right? It's one thing to give, let you tag along when I'm taking my jet anyway. It's quite another to send my jet for you or to send, pay to send someone else's jet if my jet's out of commission. How important is it that, uh, I believe in court this week, they said that he had taken 16 flights, mm -hmm. but only accounted for three in his financial filings over in the Senate. Right. I mean, initially he didn't disclose any of them. And then when the investigation began and some of these flights came to light, he disclosed two of them and reimbursed Dr. Melgan, I think it was $58,000. And at the time he said um, there were only two or three flights. So that's very important because like we talked about earlier, the key in a case like this is proving the state of mind, right? And no one's gonna really deny that the jet trips happened. The whole question is gonna be why? Is there corrupt intent, which is what the bribery statute requires? How do you prove corrupt intent? Well, if you don't have either party testifying, you know, Dr. Melgan is gonna testify and say there was a deal. One of, the, one of the best ways to prove it is to show that they tried to conceal it. Right, because why do you try to conceal what you did? Because you know you did something wrong. And that's helping to prove your state of mind, your corrupt intent. So this charge in the indictment, there's only one count in the indictment, but it's, and it's way, way at the end, but it's actually much more important than you'd think. Uh, the charge at the end of a crime called false statements, which is charges that Senator Menendez failed to report these gifts as required, the jet trips and the hotel stay in Paris and things like that, failed to report them as required on his Ethics and Government Act forms. So that's a separate crime. Failing to report those is a crime called false statements, but the fact of that crime is critically important to the overall case, the bribery allegations, because what the government then will argue is that's evidence he knew it was wrong, and so he was trying to hide it. That's evidence of corrupt intent. And the same is true with the, uh, with the fact that when it first came to light, he came out and said, well, there were only two or three trips, when in fact there were 16. You know, why do you do that? Uh, because you know that what you did was wrong and you're trying to keep it from coming to light. That's the argument. Senator Menendez is up for election next year, if he runs. Yes. He's single, divorced back in the mid 2000s. Uh, time period. Dr. Melgan is married, but in the midst of all this, there's a charge of young women being involved in this whole thing from Europe, and some of them testified this week. Can you explain that? And what what what's how did what kind of how significant is that in this whole story? Yeah, there are three different basic areas of things that the government says Senator Menendez did for Dr. Melgan in exchange for the gifts. The first is this intervention in that Medicare billing dispute we talked about, where uh, Senator Mendez repeatedly met with and emailed and talked to people at Medicare Department of Health and Human Services trying to help resolve this dispute in Dr. Melgan's favor. By the way, Dr. Melgan does not live in New Jersey. No, he's not a constituent. Yeah, yeah, yeah he lives in Florida, which is another difficulty, I think, for the defense. I mean, one thing a politician would typically say is, well, I was helping out my constituent. Right? Um, you know, Dr. Melgan doesn't live in New Jersey, so they have to f rely on the friendship argument. Um, so the one area was working on this Medicare billing dispute on Dr. Melgan's behalf. The second area uh, involved a contract that Dr. Melgan had that he had purchased, a contract to provide uh, port screening in the Dominican Republic, screening of cargo with x-ray machines coming into Dominican reports, uh, Dominican ports. And it was potentially worth many millions of dollars if it could be uh, carried out, but it had been tied up for a long time in disputes with the Dominican government. And so the second thing that Senator Menendez is charged with doing is trying to pressure the State Department to pressure the Dominican Republic to move forward on that contract so that Dr. Melgan could get the benefit of that contract. And then the third area, as you mentioned, is there are, there's evidence that for th on three different occasions there were uh, girlfriends of Dr. Melgan who lived overseas who wanted to come to the United States and Senator Menendez helped them get visas. Uh, a couple of, at least in one instance they were initially denied the visa and then after the senator intervened they were able to get the visa. Of the three, I think that's the least significant by far. You know, I mean getting the, getting a visa is relatively trivial and I think the senator is going to present evidence that it was fairly routine, you know, for him to be involved in that. And it was a long time ago. This is some of the earliest activity in the case. And so, you know, 
it, it's part of the overall story of the sort of developing exchange of favors for gifts and, and, and donations, but of the three areas, it's the least significant to my mind. How big is the jury? Twelve. And can one person withhold and call it a hung jury? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. They um, have to have a unanimous decision. Unanimous verdict, yep. If there's one holdout, then you would have a hung jury, and the government would have to decide whether to retry the case. You're listening to a 2017 conversation with Randall Eliason on Senator Bob Menendez's first corruption trial. The last senator to go to prison was Harrison Williams from New Jersey. Here's some video of Harrison Williams back in 1980. He's deceased, but he went to prison for... Uh, I think it was a year and a half or so. After the FBI agents had left his home this evening, Senator Williams had this to say about the investigation. Just a few minutes ago, two members of the FBI were here, and for the first time I learned about this and really don't know any of the facts of anything, and therefore I have no position to comment about uh, what I'm not, what I don't know is uh, happening. Can you say that you're not the target of an investigation? Right now, it appears that I am. Uh, he lost. Yeah. Question to you is, uh, how often are we missing these kind of opportunities to bring indictments against members of Congress just based on the fact that people are constantly asking for favors? Well, I guess it's hard to know ultimately. I mean, I think, again, this the system that we have of, of uh, privately financed campaigns does lead to those kinds of pressures and temptations. Um, but I think the, uh, the reason a case like Menendez ends up getting indicted is that it is so far outside the bounds of what is sort of normal Washington activity. But there's definitely a, sometimes a fine line between what we might call politics as usual and what looks like corruption. I mean, if I you know, have a, a, a political donor uh, you know, contributing to my campaign regularly who has a definite interest in some piece of legislation and I go and vote on that legislation in the way that my donor favors, there's certainly at least a perception there that there might be some kind of link, right? The reason I'm doing it is, is because of that support. And so when that kind of routine support and political action crosses over into an actual corrupt relationship is sometimes kind of a fine line, hard to draw. Probably, you know, part of the, that's part of the court's concern in McDonald, right, is, is do we trust prosecutors to draw those lines? And then you end up with a case like Menendez, you know, when an actual case gets indicted, it's typically in a case where it looks like that line is pretty dramatically crossed and, and the activity looks pretty extreme. Another case back in 2008, here's some video of Senator Ted Stevens. He was convicted in the court right down the street here, but, and he was indicted under a Republican administration. He was a Republican. And then he went on to run and he lost, and it had a major impact on the Senate. But here he is in 2008, again, uh, I want you to explain the politics of this and the role that Eric Holder, a Democrat, played in it. Mm -hmm. In violation of the Constitution and of ethical standards, the prosecutors withheld evidence that would have established my innocence. They coached their star witness to change his story just before the trial. They presented evidence that they knew was false, and they prevented my defense team from interviewing witnesses which, who would have undermined their case. The misconduct of the prosecutors was so pervasive that the court asked this, does the public integrity section have any integrity? Does it? Yes, that was a great black eye for the Department of Justice, that, that whole prosecution. And as you mentioned, um, uh, Eric Holder, when he came into office as the new attorney general, ultimately decided to basically drop the case after the senator was convicted because there were these allegations of uh, misconduct by the prosecution and the FBI. You know, there's disputes about exactly the extent of the misconduct and whether it was deliberate or kind of reckless or careless and things like that. And there were several investigations, but the bottom line it was clearly um, uh, mishandled prosecution, uh, that there were, you know, violations of the rules about disclosing it, favorable evidence to the defense and things like that. And as a result, when, like, as you said, it was prosecuted under the Bush administration, when the Obama administration came in and the new attorney general 
looked at the case, decided that the interest of justice demanded that, not that they go and retry the case again, but that they just drop it entirely. It was pretty, um, pretty dramatic. How important um, are the attorneys? Here is Senator Stevens' attorney. People will remember him possibly from <laughs> when he defended uh, uh, in the, the Iran-Contra uh, Colonel North. It's Brendan Sullivan, who I once read in the last couple of years that he was one of the first attorneys in this town to get $1,000 an hour. And he and a bunch of his attorneys around the table every day at this trial, Ted Stevens, here he is. This is he's talking back in 2012, just so we can see what he's like. And I want to put him into context. When prosecutors get into the heat of battle, something takes over the competitive spirit, their reputational implications, and they want to win at all costs. And when that takes over, they then cheat to win. And it's so easy to do because they're rarely caught. And if they are caught, what happens? Little or nothing. And it's rare, if ever, that anyone is punished. What do you think? Well, he's one of the best, and he's gotten some great results for his clients, as you note, and he's you know, incredibly vigorous, effective advocate on behalf of his clients. That kind of sweeping generalization about all prosecutors, I don't agree with. Um, it certainly does happen that there is misconduct uh, in particular cases. Um, you know, law is a human enterprise. There are flawed actors and bad people in every phase of life, including law. Um, I don't agree that it's the norm or that it happens routinely or that prosecutors in general, which is what he seemed to suggest, when they get into the heat of battle, just suddenly disregard their ethical obligations and do whatever they can to win. I absolutely disagree with that. So often, though, you see a prosecutor who then goes over to the defense side once they get out of the government. But I want to show you some video that you may ne have never seen. We're talking about Eric Holder. This goes way back to the Roskin-Kasky case. I want to show you and pay a close attention to somebody standing behind <laughs> Eric Holder. The allegations contained in today's indictment represent a betrayal of the public trust for personal gain. In essence, this indictment alleges that Congressman Rostenkowski used his elective office to perpetrate an extensive fraud on the American people. The wrongful expenditure of taxpayer dollars by and at the behest of Congressman Rostenkowski rose into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. This is not, as some have suggested, a petty matter. I didn't get to see the guy very closely, mm -hmm. but who was it? We all looked a lot younger. I think that was me standing right behind his head. What, <laughs> what was Eric Holder doing then, and what were you standing? Why were you standing behind him? Um, he it was at the press conference announcing the indictment of uh, Congressman Rostenkowski. So the prosecution team was standing behind him. I, I think the biggest question here for the average person watching is: Should they trust the system to work? I think if you watch something like the Menendez trial, it should give people faith in the system. I mean, I think, as I said, there are individual cases of misconduct where things don't go well, where the system breaks down. My experience, by and large, has been that the justice system actually does work well, that people can have confidence in it. And in these high-profile cases like this, when you have the sort of vigorous clash of good advocates on both sides and professional prosecutors who have looked at the case and determine there's a valid case there and put it together, that you can rely on now the what's going on in the courtroom to uh, uh, to get at the truth and have the jury and make a determination. I can't resist uh, showing this video because it, it doesn't say anything in particular, but it shows you how close you can get to a situation. And this is deceased former Congressman John Murtha. This goes back to the whole abscam thing in right. 1980 area. But here he is talking to people that he thinks are representing, I believe in this case, the Saudi government or a Saudi uh, business person. And uh, they're sitting in a hotel room somewhere. But you listen closely to what John Murtha is willing to do with money that they want to give him. And I'm, I'm going to be blunt now. Let me ask you now: What are are you telling me now that, uh, as far as you're concerned, is you, you you don't want any money on this thing, or you just want to you just want it to be worked as far as the that's right. uh, about putting this thing into your district, and that's all you want out I'll, of this? I'll tell you exactly what I'd like. 
I'd like to be able to tell you that uh, there's some places I'd like you to invest some money. A couple banks that have really done me some favors in the past that I'd like to put some money in. And one guy in particular, that uh, savings bank, solid, all three of them, of course, solid banks. And maybe I only want to go to one. I don't know. I have to think about this a little bit, and I'll, I'll get back to you with uh, what I think would make an impression. You know, I'm not going to go out of uh, hand, but I want to let these guys know that uh, that I did it, and they'll be appreciative of it, and it'll be uh, it'll be helpful well, to me. He did not get indicted right, uh, right. on that, but um, uh, what's what's going on here, other than the obvious? And if the public's watching from the outside, the kind of money that's involved. We talked about the defense fund. You talk about he wanted to put money over here because it would help him in his constituency. Mm -hmm. Is there any way to stop this kind of thing? <laughs> You know, I think money has been influencing politics probably since, as long as we've had politics, right? Um, and I've mentioned a couple of times, I think private financing of campaigns creates a lot of pressure and, and tensions in that area. Uh, I don't think it would solve the problem, but public financing of campaigns, I think, would be one step uh, towards at least reducing the influence of money in the political system. Let me just interrupt to say, Cory Booker, the other senator from New Jersey, a, a Democrat, has given money from his leadership pack to the defense fund for Senator Menendez. Sure. Yeah. So in effect, that's a political contribution to him that ends up going over in a defense fund to Senator Menendez. Yeah, yeah. How, I mean, can, he, how can the public keep track of all this? <laughs> I'm not sure I'm not sure anybody can keep track of all of it. I mean, and especially since something like Citizens United now that there's so much opportunity for money coming from sources that are not even you know, publicly disclosed. Um, so, uh, it's a real challenge. The, again, the line I think that we need to try to draw is between at least what have become routine and are considered legal contributions, like something to the Legal Defense Fund, and the kind of alleged corrupt relationship that's on trial now in New Jersey. There are places that people can find your write writing. Tell yes. them how to get there. Thank you. Um, well, I write a blog that's called Sidebars. So. They can go to sidebarsblog.com uh, or rdeliason.com. Either one will will get them there. Uh, and then I uh, also a, currently a contributing columnist for the Washington Post. And so if you go to the Washington Post and search for my name, there are some of my uh, my articles in there as well. You also are on Twitter. Oh yes. How do people find the Twitter account? Rd Eliason. Do people? I mean, do you get feedback from all this? Oh yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when you're in a classroom, how interested are your students about white collar crime? And is it how popular is the class? Um, I've been fortunate; it's it's a very popular class at GW. It's it's uh, I've been teaching it now there for 15 or 16 years. There's a lot of interest in my class is usually third year law students, so the, it, it's a senior, you know, they're in their final year of school. It's an elective course, and so it attracts students who are interested in criminal law possibly in being prosecutors or sometimes in being white collar defense attorneys. And so I, I've been lucky, I get pretty motivated students who are really interested in the topic. And I think one reason the course is fun for them and for me is the ability to talk about things that are going on currently in the news in the context of our class, You know, whether it's Menendez or what's going on with a special counsel investigation right now. There's always a lot of things happening in the real world that we can talk about that show how what they're studying is relevant to, to what's going on. Randall Eliason is a graduate of Harvard Law School. He was a federal prosecutor for 12 years. He now teaches the white collar crime course at uh, GW, has these uh, websites that you can read about the Menendez case and other things as you go. And how often do you write? Um, on the blog, it's usually every week or two, and then on the Washington Post, it's sort of as topics come up, it's, it's uh, not a set schedule. Well, it appears the Menendez trial is going to go on for a while, so those that are interested can find some information from you, and, and we appreciate very much you coming and uh, talking with us. Thank you. I enjoyed it.
free transcripts or to give us your comments about this program, visit us at qnda.org. Q&A programs are also available as C-SPAN podcasts. We want to make sure you know about our latest podcast, Books That Shaped America. It's a companion podcast to our 10-week television series of the same name. We've teamed up with the Library of Congress and selected 10 books from across American history that have had a major impact on our society. Each week, the C-SPAN television program will focus on one of these books and its impact. This companion podcast will give you more background on the book's authors. If you want to learn more about Books That Shaped America, go to our website, c-span.org. The podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.